Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Namo sadanto suchedo ye hulahudi san miao san putoshe. The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it, Within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, friends in the Dharma, evening, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. We're here at the Berkeley Monastery, it's Saturday night, and we're going to be explaining the Flower Adornment Sutra's Ten Grounds chapter. You'll need one of these uh, in front of you, and we're going to first of all chant the name of the Sutra, and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, which is there on the front cover. So let's chant that. Please turn to page 80 and 81 in your text. 
Okay, we're on the, the last paragraph on the Chinese page. Ji Chu Jia Yi, we'll do that paragraph. And actually, we can go all the way down to the end of that one, to the first word on the next page, page 82. And that works with the English as well. So it's a big chunk, but I think we, it's kind of one theme, so I think we can probably uh, explain that whole piece tonight. All right, we ready? I'll give you a line and you repeat after me. Ji chu jia yi. Qin xing jing jin. Yu yi nian qing. De bai san mei. De jian bai fo. Zhi bai fo shen li. Nang Dong Bai Four Shi Jie Nang Guo Bai Four Shi Jie Nang Zhao Bai Four Shi Jie Nang Jiao Hua Bai Shi Jie Zhong Sheng Nang Zhu Shou Bai Jie Nang Zhi Qian Hou Ji Ge Bai Jie Shi Nang Ru Bai Fa Men Nang Shi Xian Bai Shen Yu Yi Yi Shen Nang Shi Bai Pu Sa Yi Wei Zhuan Shu Okay, good. Let's go back to 81. Thereupon, after leaving home, he diligently cultivates with vigor within the space of a thought. He attains a hundred samadhis. He comes to see a hundred Buddhas. He's able to know a hundred Buddhas Spiritual powers. He's able to quake a hundred Buddha lands. He's able to go beyond a hundred Buddha lands. He's able to illumine a hundred Buddha lands. He's able to teach and transform the living beings of a hundred worlds. He's able to live for a hundred kalpas. He's able to know the boundaries of before and afterwards. The events of a hundred kalpas for each. He's able to enter a hundred dharma doors. He's able to manifest a hundred bodies. With everybody, he is able to manifest. I'm sorry, wrong. That should be with every body, with every single body. With every body. He is able to manifest a hundred bodhisattvas as his retinue. Okay, wow. 
We've come to the end of the chapter called the first ground out of ten grounds. And we've reached the end of the prose section. But being a Mahayana Sutra, the prose section is followed by a verse section which repeats what we've been studying in the prose. So it's kind of the first half of the first big chunk of our ten grounds chapter, the first ground prose piece, and it's the conclusion. So we're getting a summary, and there's something that we'll discover as we go on into the chapter, which is every one of the ten grounds has a similar paragraph to the one we just read, but the number changes. The hundred that we've just seen a bunch of, and they're probably at ten, a hundred is my guess, Let's see here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Ah, there are eleven hundreds here. In the next ground, the second ground, it goes up all the way up to the tenth ground. There's a similar thing. The Bodhisattva is able to do these wonderful things, but he's able to do more of them. So when you see a pattern like that in this ancient ancient text, you know there's something going on. There's, this is a, a refrain, kind of like a chorus in a song, the part that repeats. So there's a main theme being established here. And it's a, um, it's a reward. It's a conclusion. It's kind of like now the Bodhisattva gets his or her payback for having cultivated the way a bodhisattva cultivates to the level of the first ground, second ground, third ground, fourth ground, etc. So this is the graduation. And this is what happens when you do what bodhisattvas do at this point, is all these amazing things take place. So we're going to look at what those things are. First of all, we're going to go through the Chinese to make sure that we've, go through the text to make sure that we've understood the words. Then we're going to come back and look and see how to, how to, connect this to something a little bit closer to our reality, how to interpret what we're reading and, and put it in a context. <coughs> so, uh, last time, and actually the last two times, we've been hearing about the Bodhisattva leaving home. And it's important to say right at the start that the pronoun is he, but it could be a she. It's absolutely gender nonspecific here. We use one just because it it avoids having to say he, she every time. But if you want to hear, every time I say he, if you want to hear it as she, you're absolutely right, and vice versa. So, thereupon, after leaving home, he or she diligently cultivates with vigor. Jing, qin, jing, qin, xing, jing, jin. This jing, jin, this vigor, is the uh, fourth of the paramitas, the fourth perfection, the perfection of vigor, which is sometimes translated as the perfection of strength or effort. In Sanskrit, it's virya. Virya is the same word that gave rise to the English word viril, virility, just meaning strength, the strength to, to continue, the strength to come back one more time. When you thought you were down, you stand up again. That's the, the strength that's indicated here by this, this vigor. We translate that as vigor, but it, other translators have rendered it as uh, energy or effort or strength. And what's more, after leaving home and cultivating vigorously with strength, 
Yu Yi Nian Qing De Bai San Mei. Whenever there's a list, the first one is the uh, the theme, and what follows it are the developments of that theme, the variations on the theme. And so the first is in a single thought. How interesting! Right away, we've got to slow down and look at that again. Yu Yi Nian Qing. Um, this word Qing is used for an instant, so it's just like it's a finger snap. It's a that fast, in that split second. Sometimes that's used to measure time, yin So in a split second, what could be quicker than a thought? Well, not much. The speed of light, perhaps, but who knows, maybe thoughts travel in a realm of light. So maybe it's as fast as anything we can measure. In that split measurement of time, that fast, here's our topic, the bodhisattva, here's the verb, the he gets, he obtains, he, she realizes, masters, by san mei. First one of our hundreds. And this is a hundred. There's nothing metaphorical here. It's a hundred, not 99, not 101. The bodhisattva gets a hundred samadhis. And the samadhis are the source of everything else that happened. So we're going to keep looking at the words before we come back and interpret. So hang on. If if this if you find this hard to swallow and there's a lot more to come, so make room because we're gonna pack our pack our backpacks full of stuff and then go off and walk and see as if we can't digest it as we go. So he gets a hundred samadhis. What else happens? He or she jian, the verb is gets to see, obtains the vision of by for a hundred Buddhas. Okay, 100 Buddhas. Right away, you know we're in another realm. This is not the realm of the Theravada tradition where there was one Buddha, has always been one Buddha, no more, no less. In the Mahayana tradition, in this other iteration of the Dharma, Buddhas come in multiples. So the 100 Buddhas that our first ground Bodhisattva gets to see pretty quickly become a 1,000 tens of thousands, myriads, countless myriads, countless myriads squared. So as he goes up through the grounds, the number of bodhisattvas, the number of Buddhas that he can see uh, multiplies. Okay? At this point, it's a hundred. So in this samadhi, Buddhas appear. You get to see Buddhas. What else? You get to know. Watch these verbs. So the first is you get samadhis. You enter that state of samadhi. Next is you see things. So there's a visual thing that happens. Next you know things. So there's a cognition happening. You know a hundred Buddhas shanli psychic or spiritual or immaterial, non-material li, strength. So the psychic powers of Buddhas a hundred Buddhas, you can know them. You know what's going on. You see them. You understand them. Nang dong bai fu shi and you can dong. You can move a hundred Buddhas' worlds. All right. Lots of things that need interpreting there. Right. How do you move a world? What does that mean? Earthquake. Well, yes, that's actually the way it's described. 
It is like shaking in an earthquake, only it's harm-free, it's harmless. It's an earthquake that neither property nor people nor animals get injured, but it shakes. Okay, and there are a hundred of them, and it's Buddha's worlds that shake. Nang guo bai fu shi jie. Everything is the same here except the word move. Here it's guo. You can go beyond. Not 99, not 101, but you go beyond 100 Buddha's worlds when you enter the samadhi. So, what in the world could that mean? Nang zhao. Same, same sentence, only this time it's not shaking, it's not surpassing, it's shining on, illuminating, shedding light on. Just think spotlight. When you get these samadhis, you shine on a hundred Buddha's worlds. Light them up. In other words, your body becomes not only luminous, but able to shed that light. So, major things happening. This is a same, same context, but different things. Shaking, going beyond, surpassing, and shining, illuminating. Nang jiao hua, bai shi jie, zhongsheng. This verb is to teach you're able to teach the living beings of a hundred worlds. And major theme of our chapter is the Bodhisattva is doing this in order to help other people wake up. So the job of teacher, of teaching, is a theme that comes up over and over and over. Major motivation for the Bodhisattva path is the ability to explain it for others. That's, that's the vocation. That's what bodhisattvas do, is they teach. Because that is the way to end suffering, which is really the fundamental project of the Buddhist practice, the Buddhist institution. That Buddhism, per se, is about finding a way to transform pain. So the bodhisattva wants to do that in a major way. And so here he is now he's finally getting she's finally getting her wish. She's able to teach living beings in a hundred worlds. Okay? And next ground, bigger number. Next ground, bigger number, bigger number. So this ability expands. Nang Chu Shou Bai Jie. Interesting. The Bodhisattva's lifespan expands. Bodhisattva is able to live through a hundred jie eons, kalpas. Jushou just means live, your lifespan. Your body is more durable when you get to this state. You can live longer. Neng zhi qian hou ji, ge bai jie shi. Here, you're able to know the shi, the events. You know what's going on. Both qian meaning looking back, ho, looking forward through a hundred eons. Um, the word ji just means the, the limits. So, in other words, you've got a historical view and you've got a future view. Those things are visible to you. Pretty interesting what is going on to this bodhisattva once he or she enters this samadhi. You can know the events of things a hundred eons past and a hundred eons future. Next, Nang Ru 
by fa man. The word ru here literally means to enter. And you're entering a door or a gate, a gateway. You're going through a door. But um, we've been translating ever since uh, Master Hua started to lecture on these texts, explain them for us. We've been wondering about this phrase, entering Dharma doors. It means to practice. Practice Buddhist practices is what it means. It means to meditate. means to follow the Buddha's ethical guidelines. means to recite, to bow, to give up, let go of meat eating and alcohol and things like that. To to live in a spiritually harmless, beneficial way. That's what it means. And what does that have to do with entering a Dharma door? Are we right to translate it literally, to enter a Dharma door, or is there a more skillful way to translate that? We've been working on that for a long time and don't have a good answer yet. Uh, so we're, that's, that one is still... It's a picture. I mean, we all know what it means to go through a door. You're on this side of it. The things on the other side of the fenced wall, court, you don't know about. You pass through. Suddenly you're on the other side and all that stuff is visible or accessible to you because you're through the gate. It's an experience everybody has. It's pretty basic to go through a border, a boundary, and arrive at the other side. But when you connect that to fa, man, dharma, gateway, it's like, how come dharmas come in gateways? How come dharmas have gates, doors? We should chew on that one a bit, and then we'll come back and look at it. Okay, we're almost done with the hun- with the list here. Nang shi xian. Nang shi xian bai shen. You can make appear a hundred bodies. Now that's just downright esoteric. Okay, you can manifest, make show, you can make appear, cause to appear, the illusion, you could add those words, the illusion of a hundred bodies with your own body. Okay. Furthermore, there's a modifier, and in each and every one of those bodies, in literally one one body, in every one of those bodies, you can cause to appear the illusion of a hundred bodhisattvas as the following of each of your bodies. So each of your bodies shows up with a hundred bodhisattvas around you. Okay. How interesting. How interesting. So, this is the um, the conclusion, the chorus, the summary of what a first stage, first ground bodhisattva can do once he or she leaves home and enters samadhi. How interesting. This is... Um, what are, how do we relate to a chapter like this? Well, I'm going to go back. I'm going to turn back to the top again, to where we began tonight, and talk about, um, just in general, about what we might expect tonight in 2010 
in the first couple weeks of January, how does how do we relate to this, and how does it how is this relevant to our own practice, spiritual practice, whatever that might be? Okay, um, first of all, the idea is that um, I I think judging by the progression, we'll see when we get to the second, third, fourth, that this number increases. I think this is not casual and it's also not metaphor. There are places where the Buddha uses languages, language to point to something that we can't know. He points to something we do know in order to, to give us the idea of something that's impossible to know with language or thought. I don't think that's going on here. I think the hundred is real because... Um, the Abhatamsaka, this sutra that we're looking at, often is like an, an instruction manual. It's often like um, when you want to program your VCR, you know, you get that, that box that you put under your TV and it's there to help you play DVDs and play VCRs if, or if you still do cassettes and it always has that blinking number, right? We have one right behind that wall. There's a, this blinking number. Nobody's ever been able to get it right. It just blinks into eternity. You know, you can never quite get it right. But you've got that book, and the book says, press this button and then hold it three times, wait three seconds. And we've all got those doc files. They often come online now as PDFs. There's your documents folder is full of lots of PDFs that are instructions. This text is a lot like that. It's there factually to instruct us, to give us the details, the actual step-by-step instructions for how to do what bodhisattvas do, should you decide that's something you want to do. The, to take a step further back, you know, why do these sutras exist at all? Um, my best answer is that this one, the traditional answer is that the Buddha explained this text. In other words, he talked about this stuff immediately after his awakening because suddenly he could see things that were invisible to him before. The Dharma was in the Buddha's consciousness, but he still had, as the prince before he woke up, he still had all the things that we have, ignorance, view of a self, pride, doubts, fears, emotions, certainly not as, as many or as heavily as we do. They're all collectively called afflictions or obstructions, but he had them. And the instant that he woke up, that was gone. All the things that covered over his mind, they, they, they talk about it like they say, shattering the black lacquer barrel. You can imagine, this is a Tang Dynasty metaphor, but the darkest, thickest, hardest coating of something would be lacquer. You think of a lacquer bowl that you bring home from your trip to Hong Kong, right? That lacquer is shiny and glossy and hard, right? You tack, tack, tack. How do you break through that? Well, they say when you wake up, when you get enlightened, when you wake up, it's very much like suddenly breaking through that black lacquer. As hard as it is, you chip it right off and you see what's underneath, what that lacquer was coating, the 
wood bowl or or pottery or whatever it might be. Okay, when ignorance vanishes or shattered, and they say it's just as hard as lacquer, all our collected afflictions, it shatters and what's beneath it is revealed, which is, according to the principle, the, the light of our Buddha nature. And they describe it as light. It's this luminous, infinite, shining, true nature that has nothing at all you can know it by, but it's absolutely always been there. But we cover it. So you shatter it when you wake up, and at that moment, the Buddha could see all the Dharma that every Buddha who'd done what he did can also see. So right then, what did he do? He started explaining it. It was like, whoa, you know, let me tell you what I see. This is called the Dharma realm. Here I thought it was just my body and everything else, and I was in the middle of the whole world, but you know what? There's a lot of worlds, and my body is not limited by my skin. In fact, all living beings share the same body. Furthermore, the Buddha said, how strange, how strange. Every living being has this awakened nature and all can become Buddhas. It's only because of this layer of dark stuff that we think we're separate and broken and different and, and just me, and that's all. So, right then, the Buddha wanted to talk about it. The immediate impulse was to share it, was to describe what he was seeing. So that's where these came from. These are the texts. And you've got to know that the Buddha talked not to be an author, not to, to get a contract, not to become famous. The Buddha talked so that the people who he was related to and he saw were still bound up in the dark could figure out the fastest way to get to where he had come. So they were instructions. In other words, my point is to say these are instructional texts. There's not a wasted word. There's not a bit of opinion. There's not a bit of confusion or embroidery. It's all life raft talk. When your ship is going down and that ocean is under you, bottomless, you want a boat. You want a piece of wood. You want a life preserver. That's what these words are. They're meant to get us to where the Buddha got because he made it. He was there and he saw this is the, the fastest way to get my family to where I've come. So that's the basic project. So bodhisattvas want to talk about it because they too have done what the Buddha has done. They see that most of the stuff that we do in the world is directly useless and harmful often. And once we see ourselves, we can go straight. We don't just constantly spin in circles, getting a little bit of head and then falling back, getting a little bit and falling back. This is what we do all the time. So the Bodhisattvas see that and they want to tell the truth. They want to talk straight and describe what they see. So that's the... This is all to say that bodhisattvas want to teach, it seems. The main theme. They want to talk about what they see and explain it in ways that we can understand. So, <clears throat> this is... Um, these 10 or 11 
Hundreds, I think, are exactly that. It's what the first stage bodhisattva can see and do and get and know and, and explain and experience and shine, etc., etc. These are all the, the what happens when you do what our first stage bodhisattva has done. No more, no less. Wait a bit, then there's more. Wait a bit, there's more after that. So, what is it? In a split second of thought, that's the key to this. It happens in a, in a turning, right? Just a turning. The bodhisattva is able to see. It's like, what's it like? I really love that, meta, that story. Um, what is it? It's kind of a, the aphorism, I guess. From the first time I heard it, I always like hearing it again, which is darkness in a room accumulated for thousands of years vanishes with a single bic lighter. <coughs> Flick your bic, <coughs> right? Vanishes in one candle. Doesn't matter how long darkness has been in a room, thousands and thousands of years, as soon as you light up your flashlight, that darkness is gone. Because, why? Darkness is defeated by light. Light shatters the dark. Light surpasses the dark. doesn't matter how old or how long it's been in that cave for your spelunking. As soon as you turn on your headlamp, it's gone. Until you turn the lamp off and it's back. But the light vanishes, vanquishes the darkness. That's how fast. How long does it take all that darkness to go away? Gone. Light comes. So light shatters darkness. In a split instant of thought, all this stuff happens to the Bodhisattva. Okay, how do we know that? Well, how quickly have you understood the stuff? I mean, every one of us has had the experience of, oh, I get it, right? Whatever it might be. It can happen in the kitchen when you learn not to drop water into boiling grease, right? You've got your, the, the grease in the skillet is burning too, too hot and before you know what to do, you toss water in it, right? And the water goes, and you get it on your face and burns your clothes and it's on the wall. You go, oh, I learned not to do that. Hot grease and water, water doesn't put out hot grease, right? Okay, that's one I learned. What else? Oh, I learned how to open a coconut. You ever try to open a coconut? Right? Definitely a lot of things don't work. Then you see somebody who's good with a machete. Oh my goodness. Um, I remember in India, uh, we were driving to, um, I think we were going to Mayapur, as a matter of fact, to the the home of the Krishna consciousness community in Mayapur, and we stopped and pulled off the road for coconuts. And I've tried to open coconuts. You get them maybe one every two years in the Midwest. You don't see coconuts in Toledo. But occasionally coconuts show up in Toledo and you try to open it. And you just give up after a while. You've broken a knife. You've ruined the scissors. You know, you hit it with a hammer and had to go squirt out, you know, and you wind up banging the floor and pound it on this, go out in the steps, in the front steps, pound it on the concrete, doesn't work, you know. So, 
at the guy outside the, the roadside stand in Mayapur where we pulled off had these big green coconuts, right? They like the outer shell was still there. Not only the, the hairy brown shell, but the green shell. And we pull over and of course he does this all day and he's <coughs> very proud to show off his skill, right? And he holds one up and he takes this long machete that looks very sharp and he goes, <coughs> pours it in a glass, hands you. And the coconut is still falling to the ground when he's already got the coconut milk in the glass, you know. It's like, that was fast. <laughs> he knows exactly how to do it. And of course, don't kids, don't try this at home, right? It's not that the monk is telling you to get a machete and open your coconut. That guy has done it all his life and saw his dad and his grandpa and his grandpa's grandpa do it. It's a skill and you'll definitely leave some fingers behind if you try it without that skill. So don't say that I told you to do that. But, when you see somebody who's able to open a coconut, it's like, oh, I get it, you know, blink. So what was it that woke you up when you saw in an instant, oh, I get it, right? Now I know. Now I know. You double click on the icon, up comes Photoshop. Before you knew how to double click, it was just this thing on the screen. So the bodhisattva in a single instant of thought enters samadhi that way. And that's the key. That's when everything opens up. So um, central to all of these incredible things happening is the ability to the sanmei. How many? A hundred. A hundred samadhis. What is it like to enter samadhi? Well, um, the first answer is I don't know because I haven't entered a bodhisattva's samadhis. I haven't obtained, use that verb, bodhisattva's samadhis. But I have meditated to a place where something happened very suddenly, which was my knees stopped hurting. But I didn't realize it at the time, because if I had and said, oh, you know what? My knees just stopped hurting. They would instantly start to hurt again. But... I've had the experience of sitting there with my knees utterly, totally on fire, burning, burning, burning. Because it's a rare individual who is able to sit still for a long time in meditation without going through some discomfort. It's pretty rare. In fact, Master Empty Cloud, our grand teacher, Master Shuyin, um, who lived to be 120 and who was known for being able to sit down, cross his legs, and then seven days later uncross his legs and stand up, sometimes 30 days later. He could enter samadhi and not move for days and days and days. You know, how did he go to the bathroom? Didn't he have to drink? You know, questions always come up. And I, 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 I don't know, he just sat there, he's not moving. Okay, so that's what he could do. And he said, somebody asked him, Venerable Sir, what do you do so your legs don't hurt? His answer was, I don't know. My legs always hurt. <laughs> oh yeah? You too? Really? Okay. So, how interesting. I have meditated and sat there 
with my legs feeling as if they were going to start smoking. Like there'd be just black smoke coming out of my knees. That kind of like, oh, it's hurting me. And something comes up in my mind. So I'm diverted. And it doesn't occur to me until a minute, two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes later that I'm still sitting there and my legs didn't smoke after all and I didn't die the way I thought I was going to die and the fire trucks didn't rush up and pour water on my legs. The mind does funny stuff when your legs are on fire. You know, you make these movies and I'm still sitting there and it's not hurting anymore. It's not, it didn't, you know. And then as soon as the thought moves, it's like, oh yeah, hurting again. But I know that there's a place where there's a little change. Okay, not samadhi, but realizing that you somehow changed. A, cha- a physiological, psychological change happened because you just said, I'm not going to move. Is that anything like obtaining samadhis? Maybe. Maybe so. Maybe that's like a preliminary stage of what for a bodhisattva is the sanmi. Something like that. So, what do I know about samadhis? Samadhis are a refined state of stillness. It has to do with concentration. It has to do with reducing the number of thoughts in the mind. Because a lot of the hurting happens in the mind. Fear that you're going to die. Fear of being the first one to put your legs down and make noise in the meditation hall, right? And you're the, the wuss who had to drop your legs first. Fear of that. You know, fear that somehow you might just stand up and run out of the room and run down the street. You know, because this is so difficult to do. All of the shame involved. Fear that you bought the airplane ticket to come to the retreat and it's the first day and your legs are hurting already. How can you possibly make it through seven more? All that stuff in the mind hurts. All of that stuff hurts. And when you sit still and you're able to get to a place where that chatter is reduced the pain is also reduced. It's amazing how much of the pain in your legs and the discomfort and your back and your neck and your shoulders is just the mind blocking circulation. Conclusion is what? Thoughts are pretty coarse. C-O-A-R-S-E. Thoughts are not very subtle. Thoughts are big and strong and they can block you and make your whole energy system hurt and when you can concentrate the thoughts refine they they smelt that's a really good word for meditation it's very much like you think of you know when you make steel or iron I understand I've never seen it really done but I've read about it heard about it you take ore pull it out of the ground you put it in with something called Coke, C-O-K-E, which is number one, not cocaine. Number two, not Coca-Cola. Number three, not other things that we call by the same name. Coke is another element. You put it in and you add heat. And a skillful 
person with the blast furnace can take these elements and get very, very hard metal. But in the process, it turns red hot, then white hot, and then it's done. You cook it, right? Very much like what's going on when you're sitting still. What's cooking? Your mind, mostly. Okay, but what's going on? Well, it hurts like crazy. And our culture is not one that is patient with pain very much. <clears throat> we have words for people who indulge pain. They're called masochistic, right? Obsessive. People who like to in, who inflict pain on themselves. Or, it's not a very positive image of somebody who is able to endure pain. Stoic, we call them. Spartan, we call them. You know, people who refuse to take aspirin with headaches and things. It's generally not anything that our culture celebrates, the ability to endure pain. However, every meditation tradition that, well, that's not true. I know some that don't. But many, many traditions um, say that the sweet comes after the bitter. Right? What is it? Ku jin gan lai. Right? Ku hou. Is that how it goes? Fang jiao hang. Ku jin gan lai. Ku hou. Ku jin. Ku jin gan lai. After the the bitterness comes the sweet. Okay? What do we say? Well, we do have we do have an institution where that's the rule. Athletics. Training. Right? No pain, no gain. We've heard that one. Similar kind of thing because meditation is an athletic process. There is a physical, mental, disciplinary element that is part of yoga. And the meditation that the bodhisattva gets is a yogic process, for sure. So this happens to be something like Raja Yoga, or there's a bit of Jnana Yoga in it, different kinds of yokes that you put over the body. It's an uncomfortable process until the yoke starts to, to fit us. Then it changes. And the description of samadhis, the way the bodhisattvas and the Chan school talks about samadhi, says it's the finest experience any person can have. Finest meaning, use your imagination. What could be finer than entering samadhi? Well, a good meal? Yeah, nice. Feel comfortable, warm, your favorite flavors, right? Food and drink, body's comfortable. That's nice. What else? Well, people talk about experience of sexual bliss. That's obviously a major motivator, right? It's what allows the species to continue for one, so it's definitely a rewarding thing. Every mammal, every creature is drawn to the opposite sex and there's, there's a reward. Okay, that's a fine experience according to the body. All the, the texts say can't compare to the pleasure of samadhi. No comparison. Okay, what else? Sleep is really pleasurable. When you're really tired, of course, you want to sleep. We do it every time the planet revolves on its axis. We 
mostly sleep. If you don't, you know. You missed a night of sleep. Wow. We talk about all-nighters, right? Uncomfortable. You don't function very well. It could be dangerous if you drive a vehicle. When you've missed sleep, sleep-deprived. We've got to do that. It's very pleasant. Can't compare to samadhi. Okay? So when you start listing them, there aren't that many really, really pleasant experiences that we can have with the body. They, invo- they involve eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and skin, you could say, or the body. There are pleasures of the mind. Mm, I know people who think that listening to Bach is about as close as Western religious culture gets to the heavenly stages, heavenly realms. That the Bach's music, when you listen to that with headphones and get really into the sound and let it kind of move you, there's a very kind of inevitability about Bach. Mm, sacred experiences in <coughs> the cultures of Europe and music are tightly woven. So that's a very, very pleasant state involving the ear. They say that samadhi goes beyond. When you can enter, they say, the four dhyanas to begin with. And these are preliminary samadhis, right? If you enter the first, second, and third, and fourth dhyana, they say, can't compare. There's nothing that the senses can know, nothing that the mind can know that compares. Because samadhi is a synthesis of body and mind. It's like... Um, before we had electronics, probably the finest thing that humans made was a well-tuned machine. The, the available images that we had were sewing machine. Sewing machine. <coughs> Many moms, my mom, I remember my mom running her sewing machine and it was a little delicate mechanism that worked very well. Right? Sewing machine depended upon smooth because she was running, she had a foot treadle, ran it with her foot and the needle went like that. Very, ran very well. It didn't like squeal, squeak. It didn't wobble. It was a really good, fine machine. When you can enter the first dhyana, your body and your mind function like that very smoothly. Okay, later on, wheels. The sewing machine depends on wheels. Wheels depend on being true, right? The spokes, the same distance. It doesn't... It's... Samadhi is a lot like that. But it's your body and your mind used in harmony. Think about the last time you had your car repaired. If your car was putting black smoke out the tailpipe and had that feeling of, "Uh uh-oh, something's wrong under the hood, you know that your engine wasn't tuned. When you tune it up, there's a... runs really well, right? Body and mind in samadhi, it's like that. 
runs really well. What is the black smoke out the tailpipe? Greed, anger, delusion, pride, doubt, afflictions. The classical afflictions are just like an untuned physical engine. When those things are less obstructing, especially when they contribute to the self, those afflictions, our meditation feels like a car out of tune. It hurts to sit there. When those things are gone or much reduced, so your greed is not as huge as it used to be. It's not the case that everything you see you want. Your anger is not as huge as it used to be. It's not the case that everything I see just makes me want to explode, especially stuff that doesn't go my way. Delusion is not as rampant as it used to be. Pretty much your understanding, your views are in tune with principle. When pride is just, you know that you're not the only number one, the best, the most important person in the room. When doubt is not like this fog around your mind. Greed, anger, delusion, pride, and doubt. The five basic afflictions, when those are not as huge as they used to be, much reduced, much more mellow, then when you meditate, it's easier to have this experience of something changes in inyanqing, right? Like that. Something changes. And you feel as if there's been a shift, like shifting gears somehow, just like in a car. I don't know if you've ever driven a stick shift. We don't pretty much anymore. But you shift and it's like, and there's a, there's a change. And you feel tuned. You feel tuned. Frank, you had your hand up? Samadhi, soft day, not samadhi, samadhi, samadhi. Could you say a little louder? I can't quite hear. You say there's no movement of... There's no movement, uh, no movement of hot, no thinking. Hot, you're saying? H-O-T, hot? Thought, 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 thought. Okay, T-H-O-U-G-H-T, thought. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Good question. Okay. Frank's question was um, the movement of thought is what I'm describing. And if you recite the Buddha's name, Namo Omitofo, that's a movement of thought. Can you use that to enter samadhi? Okay. Short answer is yes, you can. It's called the Nin for Sanmei, the Buddha recitation samadhi. And. Um, let me get to that as I explain the four dhyanas, okay? Now, um, I'm going to take a little bit of time and work with this first sentence, knowing that we've got a whole paragraph of 100, 100, 100. 
But the first sentence is key. The other states the Bodhisattva accomplishes happen because in a single thought, he or she is able to do by sanme, get a hundred samadhi. Okay. We're talking about, um, Frank's question was about thoughts. Let's talk about four samadhis that are really close to us because Master Shenhua and other monks, meditation teachers, say that anybody can enter samadhi. Can anybody can attain the dhyana samadhis, chanding, that, that state, the first, particularly the first one, if you work at it. You can. It's these states are available to any one of us. And there's a specific, clear method to get there. Let me describe them. The first one is called Li Sheng Shi Le Di. It's the state of Shi Le, happiness. Li Sheng, that is beyond what living beings can know. Li Sheng, that's shorthand for it's far away from Li Kai Zhong Sheng So Zhi Dao Da Yi Zhong Kuai Le. It's a state of happiness that is set, that is goes beyond what ordinary folks can know, because ordinary folks, us, are using our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind on the things that we encounter every day. Eyes see sights, love some, hate some, neutral to others. Hear sounds, love some and grab them, hate some and shut them off. And a lot of it is just static. Nose, tongue, body, mind all have things that we pursue, things that we hate, right? We crave some, we're averse to some, and there's a lot that we just process. That's what sheng do. That's what we living beings do with our bodies and minds all day long. In that first dhyana, we li sheng, we can go beyond those and you get a state of shila, happiness. It's a state of happiness beyond what living beings can experience. Okay, how do you do it? Just as I was describing, you work on the things that move you. What moves me? Well, I was giving you painting a little picture of the meditator in the retreat, right? It's the first day you've been sitting there for five hours, your knees are on fire, you had no idea it was going to be so painful, and you're thinking about your plane ticket. Can I get a refund, right? If I get a flight tomorrow morning, can I get a, who's going to take me to the airport? Because clearly this is not, I'm not going to be sitting here for seven days or 10 days, forget it. You know, and you're, you're already making, calculating, right? And the more you do that, the more it hurts. <coughs> Getting through that is a big step to be able to calm down those fears, usually my experience is I have to tell myself don't do anything for three days. No matter what session I'm in, the first three days are no fun at all. You just bear it. You get your strength up and get through it. Usually, somewhere around the morning of the fourth day, things are really different. But the first three days are tough. Okay, because you're turning 
around the six senses that you need in the world to function. If you're in your meditative state of bliss and you go out and drive a car across the Bay Bridge into San Francisco, you're in danger, right? And so is everybody else because you're not noticing. You're, you've already pretty much, you know, calmed down eyes touching sights and ears touching sounds. You're a hazard to navigation, right? You've got to get out and process. That's a green light. You've got to know what a green light is. You have to use your senses out. When you're sitting there, in your, let's say, a Chan meditation retreat, Vipassana meditation retreat, the first three days, you're disengaging bit by bit. Not that you block it, not that you hold it tight, but you're letting move the eyes that go out to see things because you need to know that's red, that's green. When you're meditating, come on, you don't need to know. But to turn the senses around is about a three-day process in any given retreat. Some people are sitting all day long, all their lives, all year round. It's no difference. They can do it at will. My experience is, any time I leave the Chan Hall or the, or the Buddha Hall to go out into the world and use my senses outwardly, it takes time to get them back. It's just like, kind of, um, what was the wonderful William Butler Yeats poem? Um, it's one of Yeats's shortest poems. He says, Hands do as your bid. Bring the balloon of the mind that bellies and drags in the wind into its narrow shed. Right? So Yeats was talking about a craft or about peeling potatoes or washing. Hands do as you bid. Bring the balloon of the mind. Think of the mind like a balloon out there, belly and dragging in the wind. The wind blows, the balloon is all over. The... What do you do? You're trying to bring it into the shed and close the door. The mind, in, when it's used in the world, is just like that. So meditation is this process of pulling the balloon of the mind slowly and the eyes and the ears and the nose and the tongue and the body so that you can sit still. Good. Okay. When you can do that, after the third day, usually what it takes me, then one day, usually sometime in the fourth day, you realize that things are finer. Your mind is just refined, calmer, quieter. You don't move as much towards things outside you, sounds outside you. Bit by bit, you work on what? The thoughts inside because that sixth sense, the sixth consciousness, that the mind is the troublemaker of all. That's another whole realm of needing to subdue. So, what's the second dhyana? The second dhyana, the second dhyana stage is called ding sheng shi le di. It's a state of happiness Xi le di, like the first one, right? Li sheng shi le di. It's a state of happiness that what ding sheng that gives rise to, gives birth to, that brings on ding, concentration, samadhi. The second dhyana is a state of happiness when you've really got your six senses under control. Maybe for the first time and who knows how many lifetimes. It's a feeling of incredible 
liberation and control and freedom all at once. Simply because your mind is not flying all over the place the way it used to. Okay? And your six senses, your five senses, your physical senses and your mind now tinghua for the first time. They obey you. Okay. Now, we still haven't gotten to Frank's question, right? Okay. But it's slowly that it's getting more calm. Now, there's a third dhyana. The third dhyana is called li shi miao le di. It's a stage. These are all di, right? Like our grounds. Ten grounds are shi di, the ten grounds. The four dhyanas are also called stages or grounds. This is miao le di. It's a stage of incredible blissfulness. Miao <clears throat> le. It's not shi le anymore. Earlier it was happiness. The first two. The third is miao le. Marvelous bliss. Incredible, wondrous kind of bliss. A kind of happiness, peace, joy that goes beyond mere happiness. It's no longer just an emotion because happiness is definitely a feeling of happy. Miao le is a kind of mm, incredible bliss. And we kind of run out of words at this point. What is it? Li shi. It's a state of wonderful bliss that leaves happiness behind, it says. That's the name of it. Gone beyond shi. It's not, no longer is it simply shi. It's now wondrous bliss. And what has happened? Further refinement. Your car, your sewing machine, your wheel now runs better than it ever has, ever, ever, ever. Can you imagine what that state is like? The Pali texts say that this is the dhyana that the Buddha became a Buddha in. That the night of the Buddha's awakening, the prince sitting beneath the tree got to the third dhyana and that was all it took to break through his ignorance. So we're not even to the samadhis that we're talking about here. We're still in the, what are called the dhyana samadhis. Shurfu says we can realize these states. These are the states of Brahma gods. This is the Brahma realm. It's said, okay, the Buddha is really specific as he lays these out. It's like a road map. How does it work? Well, let me get to the fourth one, then I'll come back and lay these out. The, the study of the dhyanas is book length. I mean, you could talk about these at huge length, and we're just first sentence in the sutra. We're not even to pusa, the samme, the samadhis of bodhisattvas, which are another whole realm. Okay, fourth dhyana. Shunian qingjing di. This is no longer a state of shila, happiness. It's no longer a state of miaola, bliss. It's now a state of purity. Qingjing. Qingjing di. The stage of purity, shunian, where all coarse thoughts are gone. Shunian, qingjing di. Right? You've left your thinking behind entirely. At this point, you could say 
your mind sense, the sixth consciousness, that is the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, that one, number six, it's no different than your eyes now. It's not this dominant, scary opinion maker that we, that runs our lives now. It's just another sense organ. Very mellow, very calm, very pure. The stage of purity where thoughts no longer boss you around. Okay, that's the fourth dhyana. This is not to arhatship. You're not, you're not even an arhat yet. These are the dhyanas. That's important to say. But it's a state that your, my, body and mind can realize. Because all these programs, all these circuits are right there. They're just waiting for us to boot them up. Nobody gets anything new when they enter the dhyanas. It's just you operate it. Okay? When was, what, how magic is it to realize that when you go ding, 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 okay, that's an interesting note, right? Pure note. Did you know that underneath it there's same note, only and there's also make it pretty. vibratory scale, it's the same. You can't appreciate the harmonic without a microphone, but it's very wonderful. Same note, all hiding in there. Before we knew, sing an E. La, sing an E. Can't hit it, right? Those harmonics are all there under the note. If you don't have somebody point it out, an E is just an E. La. That's it. La. Never mind that. La. Okay. If you hit a piano, you know these notes are there. It's all an E. How amazing. We have all the wiring for samadhi right inside us. We don't know about it until we boot it up, until we la. La, till we do it. Then these octaves are there. All they're waiting. You just have to reach for it and do it. So, okay. <clears throat> Frank asked about the Buddha recitation samadhi. His question was, since that's a thought, can we get samadhi when we're saying namo omitofo? Historically, there are monks in China who would have said, no, can't. It's got to be Chan. It has to be beyond words and thought and language. In the Ming Dynasty, 16th century, clearly 
there were monks who were entering samadhi through reciting the Buddha's name. So we got what was called dual cultivation with monks like Yong Ming Yan Shou, Dhyana Master Yong Ming Yan Shou from the Ming, Master Han Shan of the Ming, cold, Silly Mountain, Master Lian Shi Da Shi, Master Lotus Pond, all of whom both sat still and were known as Pure Land teachers. Okay, there were the great masters of the Ming Dynasty who, for the first time, said, "It's a." useless to put the Chan monasteries on that mountain and the Pure Land monasteries on this mountain. Let's come together and do both at different times. Now we're going to sit in meditation. Now we're going to recite the Buddha's name. Get the same results. Okay, and they did. How do you do it? Well, technically, I don't know because I haven't done it. But when you, you can recite the Buddha's name until you get to a state called Yi Xin Bu Lan, single-minded, beyond confusion, single-minded, without any chaos in your mind. What is that state? Can't tell you for sure, but it's a whole lot like the dhyanas I was describing. You do what's called the Chinese say Yi Du Gong Du. You use poison to defeat all poisons. You fight fire with fire, right? For the forest fires in Cal firefighters in California see that the ridge is burning, so they know that there's a fire road on the other side of the ridge. They go running over to the fire road, cut down the trees 100 feet on this, the other side of the fire road, hoping that when the fire gets there, there won't be anything for it to burn because the, the trees are down and it'll burn itself out. They start a backfire also. They start a fire hoping that the wind will take it that way and it won't turn around on them. So fight fire with fire. Use poison to defeat poison. You use the Buddha's name to subdue other thoughts. So Namo Omitofo or Namo Dizawan Pusa or Namo Dabe Guan Shiyin Pusa. No matter what name you're chanting. Or I would maintain that Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, is the very same thing. Because I have seen some very profoundly meditating Catholic meditators who have a very still mind, and when you ask them, they're using the Jesus prayer. If you got your TM mantra back in the day, when Transcendental Meditation was popular back in the 60s and 70s in, in America, Many, many, many people got a Sanskrit word that was your mantra and by golly, it worked. Your mind got quiet even though you didn't know what it meant. You're not supposed to. You're just reciting that mantra. Same idea. So, it would be wrong to say because my goal is to have no thoughts, therefore, I can't use a thought. I can't recite the name of Amitabha to get there. In fact, you can't get there without that thought. It's just a method. In the end, you don't need Amitabha either once ignorance is gone. But to think that without fire you're going to stop the forest fire, mm, you better have a big road or else the fire is going to jump. So, okay, so it's traditionally 
all the Chan monks say, yeah, you do use a thought to subdue thoughts. <clears throat> when you recite the Buddha's name, it has the extra advantage of being a powerful sound all in itself. Buddha's names are really, really, really special. All of the cultivation that the Bhikshu Fazang Dhammakara did wound up in the name Amitabha. So when we recite that name, we're invoking all of that goodness and goodness and goodness and virtue and virtue and virtue in the name. So if you sit still and recite Namo Bill Clinton, you know, chances are not as much is going to happen. You know. There could be a miracle, but I don't think it's quite as virtuous. So Namo Amitabha has the power. Namo Medicine Master Buddha by Sajiraj Guru. That has centuries, light years, kalpas, mahakalpas of goodness and sacrifice in it. So Buddha's names are very, it's not just the same sound. So uh, that's my best answer, Frank. Um, the dhyanas, okay, here's one more thing about the dhyanas and then we're going to sum up our, our hundreds here. This is a little scary, but only if you can't hear the whole picture. How do you get to that first dhyana state? The, the quick answer is you end desire. What does that mean? It means that desire is based on the senses. And for a meditator, what it means is you see something you can't do without and you've got to go for it. You hear, taste, smell, feel, think something you can't do without and you've got to go for it. So you reach out into the world of things, sight, sound, smells, taste, sensation to touch, dharmas, and grab for something because you crave it, you're attached, you can't do without it. Likewise, because it's the Dharma, flip it over. There's something that you hate that you can't let go of and you reach out, you run from it. So craving and aversion, same thing. But it's out there. It's an object. It's something you've got to have hot sauce in your pho or else it doesn't taste good and you're unhappy with your bowl of noodle soup because you've got to put pepper in it. Right? Very ordinary. The guy, my friend David, I've told this story about him before. David was asked if he was going to leave home and he said, yes, I'm going to leave home, sure, I really got to leave home. Well, David lasted three days. When he came back three months later, Sherfu said, David, Guajo, what was it? We heard you were going to leave home this time, but you were gone after three days. What was it? He said, Sherfu, it was the New York Times and toast and coffee in the morning. I just couldn't put it down. <laughs> I understand, says Sherfu. Strong. These are habits. They're strong. You know, try, try again. Sherfu didn't discourage him. He said, try your best. It's strong, huh? Yeah. So, if that's what I'm saying, desire is anything. New York Times, toast and coffee with jam and butter, you know, or pancakes and syrup, whatever it is, waffles, waffles. If it pulls you out, that's desire. So, what's it like when you enter that li sheng shi le di? It's not that you have cut off your body and mind and 
beating yourself up because now you're pure. <laughs> I'm pure. You know, I made it. Cross the finish line. It's not. It's that bit by bit, the meditation that you have done because you sat there through the three days of misery, you sat there and started to feel pretty good. Bit by bit, you were willing to let go of the other stuff so that you could experience that state. And desire lessens bit by bit by bit. And usually you trade it off for something you like better. People who aim for samadhi by beating themselves up, clenching their teeth and hating desire, utterly fail. Because, of, you know, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. That's the old aphorism, right? If you want to get people to stick around, give them something they like, something sweet. If you want to enter the dhyana samadhis, you won't meditate long enough if you only get there by cutting off desire. You will stick around if you discover that meditation's pretty nice. And it's better than what you had, which was desire, desire, what is the nature of desire? It's never satisfied. And if you can't get it, it often leads to anger. If desire is frustrated, it usually produces the second affliction, which is anger and hatred and all that stuff. So desire is tricky because it burns like a fire. It's hard to satisfy. And if you don't get it, it produces anger. Whereas dhyana samadhi is there waiting for you every single time. It is not dependent on external conditions. It's yours. Dhyana is not dependent upon state of mind, date of the, you know, date of the year, the month. She smiled at me just right the way I like to be smiled at. She frowned at me the way I hate to be frowned. All those myriad conditions that feed desire, totally not part of dhyana samadhi. Dhyana arises out of what? Goodness and kindness. Not meanness and bitter reaching. Right? There are people who try to get to dhyana samadhi through forcing everything around them to be quiet. Impressing this anger and anal control over the, you know. You see people meditating, monks and nuns, who try to impose their rigid control over the environment so that they can enter. That won't do it. That's, dhyana works when, bit by bit, desire calms down. If you think of the six senses, before we start to meditate, they're like this. Oh, I now got the hot sauce. Ah, that tastes just the way it always did. Oh, now, you know, I'm now depressed and I'm kind of bummed out. Oh, but I'm getting happy. I'm now, this is really blissful, right? The state of these desires with the senses often have these peaks and valleys, you know, in your life, just going from bliss to, to, to depression. When you're able to calm the senses, it's more like this. It's like, the swells of the waves are much calmer. And when you meditate, it's like, 
Yeah, my eyes see those sights. They're okay, but I don't want to cling to them. My eyes hear those sounds. Nothing wrong with them, but not today. I'm meditating. I taste those tastes. I've tasted them all my life. I don't have to taste them every single day to be happy. In fact, plain is good. Okay? When somebody's ready to enter the dhyanas, the flavors of the senses taste pretty much the same. So if you, when you're a meditator who's been sitting there or chanting or whatever you do, whatever you, whatever way you work, you'll know that this person is starting to interact with their meditation because why? Everything is kind of calm and ordinary. Things get very ordinary when your inner meditation starts to get very sweet. The opposite is true. If you find a, a meditator who is like really opinionated and has stuff they love and stuff they hate and it's got to be this way and you're really aware of their preferences and their dislikes, that person's inner life is hit or miss and often stormy and unsatisfying. So when the outer world comes down and things are pretty much okay, it doesn't you know, Scherfu's famous line, everything's okay, no problem. If you can live that way, you know that that person's inner life is probably very sublime. And they're, they can see far because there aren't the peaks and valleys of love and hate and desire blocking them inside. So, just to say, okay. That's why I say... To hear you enter the first dhyana when desire comes to an end, that sounds scary until you realize that that's a lot of work. And the work is not in beating yourself up or gritting your teeth and getting rid of stuff. It's, no, I've found something even finer than what my senses deliver to me in the daily rounds of the world, which is often... You know, a lot of conditions have to go in place before life is good. What about when life is really not good, like a war going on? Can you still enter dhyana if you have pretty much calmed it down? A time of social upheaval can be a very good time to meditate, depending on how you have tamed your six senses. Xiangfu qi xin subdued your mind. Easy to say, really hard to do because the world does not support this. This is profoundly countercultural. The world tells us, get out and get involved in the marketplace and buy the one that you like. I'm loving it. Right? That McDonald's or that Coke or McDonald's, man, that is so like non-dhyana. That is not the road to samadhi. I'm loving it. You deserve a break today, so get out. And I deserve, you know, it's like the emphasis on me and what I like. That's not the road to, to calmness. Right? It's the world of the marketplace. So if we can see that, then you say, okay, okay, nothing wrong with the marketplace. I, it greases the wheels of industry, but. There is a time when that gets really old and I want to 
do something different, like enter samadhi. That's the way. Okay. Thereupon, the bodhisattva cultivates with vigor within the space of a thought, attains a hundred samadhis. These are avatamsaka samadhis. It's another whole realm beyond the dhyana samadhis, those four I was talking about. So we'll go into that next time. And these hundred things happen. <coughs> we're going to start next week on page 83, but we're going to reprise the hundred and talk about how the bodhisattva surpasses that number goes on up, 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 and Vajra Treasury is going to start us back on the repetitive verses that reprise the principles of the first ground, the first stage. And there's more. We're, we just put in an extra um, 10 pages with hard work, people's resolve, and we're going to uh, finish up the first ground and then do a bit of review and then launch into the second ground, which is incredibly powerful chapter talking about virtue and morality. Okay, there we go. Shall we transfer the merit? And I've got lots of stories and news to report. On your uh, green or yellow page, you've got a... Please make a wish. Um, I mentioned that Doug Powers' mom uh, passed on, and we're delighted that Jung Guoji's mom is out of the hospital, back home. So she um, made it through a gate, and many people feel, I heard from Guji and Gokuk, they think it was people's prayers that, that made the difference. So, And I noted that uh, Vice President Joe Biden's mom, also 92, passed away. She, uh, President, Vice President Biden, uh, brought his mom's name into a lot of the public discourse. And he said, she runs the show. And he says, no, I mean it, he said. So how nice to have a public figure with his kind of uh, integrity bringing the presence of his mom into the awareness. I was always waiting for George W. to talk about Barbara. He almost never did. And she's a presence, you know. She was the first lady for, for years. But then... George W. didn't seem to have that connection. I don't know what, whether he did or not, but we never heard about it anyway. And to have the vice president talk about Mrs. Biden and how important her lessons were for him his whole life, she's passed away at 92, just like Doug's mom and Goji's mom. So um, I don't know if she was a Buddhist or if she wants our merit, but I think if you transferred to that 
that goodness, it certainly wouldn't go astray. Compassionate and wise. 